We'll review the main headlines in today's uh, sto- in today's newspapers, and we'll start off with the Sunday Independent. The splash on the Sunday Independent is Minister, we're Trump's friend. Flanagan will build strong relationship on early visit to the US. Jody Corcoran writes that the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, said that Ireland intends to build a strong relationship with the administration of US President-elect Donald Trump. No surprise there. He is, irrespective of what went before, the man in the seat now. Um, the off-lead on the Sindo, Kenny will capitulate to unions over early pay talks. According to Philip Ryan, Taoiseach Enda Kenny is preparing to capitulate to the demands of the public sector unions and bring forward talks on a renegotiated pay deal that newspaper says it has learned. The Sunday Business Post leads with union demands will wreck economy, according to the former finance chief on the same theme. This uh, concerns uh, an article penned for the Sunday Business Post by former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, John Morn. And according to the lead story there, the gist of that is that public sector unions are making unfair pay demands that will wreck the country's finances. That paper also has um, Harris orders probe into big pharma payments to medics. This is in relation to the story that I think the Business Post broke last week about payments to uh, medical professionals from big pharmaceutical companies. That says the Minister of Health, Simon Harris, has sought a review of payments to the pharmaceutical industry, to doctors and public hospitals following this newspaper's investigation into the matter. The Business Post also has a photograph of the late Leonard Cohen on its front page concerning a piece inside written by its arts editor Nadine O'Regan with the quote, When Cohen sang, he seemed to address you directly as a confidant. And I think a lot of people will probably agree with that, certainly those of us who um, are fans of the late Leonard Cohen. The Sunday Times has a strap which I think says an awful lot, Trump, America's journey into the great unknown. It leads with, I think, something of a delicious headline, I would have to say, Fury over Trump's retreat and vows. He isn't in the jo- he isn't in the job yet. He hasn't been elected a wet week and we're already seeing stories that he's making major retreats on those quite extreme promises he made. Uh, Mexican wall was just talk and no end to Obamacare is the subhead on that. Also there, O'Sullivan texts, O'Sullivan texts read by McCabe inquiry. The judge investigating claims that Gardy organised a smear campaign to discredit the whistleblower Morris McCabe has examined texts and calls made to the Garda commissioner. That is that ongoing story about the Garda whistleblowers. Sunday Times also has budget by support for Fine Gael. This is in relation to its latest opinion poll that suggests that says that Fine Gael are up by three points in the... Um, in the latest uh, opinion poll, also the public approval of the government has increased from 31 to 34 percent since the pre-budget poll in October. Finally, on that paper, Ross judges must declare interest. This is in relation to the Independent Alliance Minister Shane Ross, who's insisting that a government bill to create a judicial council must compel judges to make a declaration of interests. Now, the Irish Mail on Sunday has a different story altogether. Charities chief quits watchdog resignation weeks after the Mail on Sunday revealed her salary was topped up by €10,000. That story is about a board member of the charity regulator who has resigned after her own charity had to delay lodging up-to-date accounts. They also carry a strap in to do with the appearance on the Late Late Show of the controversial uh, pundit. Katie Hopkins. I'm not to blame for late, late. Vulgarity is the line on that. And finally, the Sunday World leads with a, what it says, an exclusive speak out. Brave mother who was battered by savage ex-soldier makes a stand. Now, to discuss 
those newspapers were joined on our panel by former Justice Minister and Fine Gael TD Nora Owen, Pat Rabbit, who's a former leader of the Labour Party, and John Isle, Head of Communications at Goodbody. Thank you all very much for joining us. John, if I can start with you, John Isle. As a native New Yorker, uh, the, obviously, quite obviously, the story dominating everything is the election of Donald Trump. John, I made reference to that headline in the Sunday Times, Fury over Trump's retreat and vows. Are, are, are we already seeing a rollback from the more, some would say, outrageous promises that were made during the campaign? I think we should be wary of false hope at this stage. We're all still trying to let this shocking or surprising news settle in our consciousness and, and understand how really to regard uh, a candidate and now a president-elect, the like of which we'd never seen before. We should remember, I think, that, that Trump was a, a serial dissembler throughout the campaign, um, that you couldn't take him at his word, whether he was saying something positive or negative, and that his retreat right now might be a strategic or, or, or a short-term tactical move that will position him for something he really wants down the line. And we saw this throughout in his campaign at all. So the question I'm asking myself is, who's he trying to con now? Which audience is he addressing when he says, for instance, oh, there are parts of Obamacare uh, that I won't roll back, or perhaps I won't build that, that wall on the border with Mexico? Is he trying to appease congressional Republicans because he has his eye on a bigger prize, perhaps uh, tax cuts that he wants to put through or an uh, increase in the deficit to fund his enormous uh, infrastructure plans? Um, I think it's it, we should be mindful of uh, what behavioral economists tell us about politicians. I was uh, down in Kilconomics on Friday night listening to a lecture by Dan Ariely, who's one of the leading behavioral economists. And he said, when you ask people about politicians... Um, they say they don't like liars. But when you actually test uh, what sorts of things they reward, they tend to like hypocrites as long as the hypocrites are on their side. Pat, uh, Robert, as a long-standing politician, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> which, which class do you fall into? <laughs> well, I, I suppose if you can come up with a rational uh, and logical and probably effective alternative, I'm willing to listen to the blanket dismissal of politicians of uh, of all hues. Uh, but, you know, as Churchill said, um, you know, democracy has its defects until you see... I think he said it's the worst form of government apart from a, all the others. Apart from all the others, that's correct. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's easy to... Uh, it's easy to, um, to uh, denigrate uh, politics and politicians and political parties and you know th there are many reasons why people are disaffected but when you see this kind of revolt uh, you know a against democratic politics uh, you wonder where it's going to lead and the difficulty I have in answering the question is I really don't know I don't know what Donald Trump stands for Um I, I, I broadly have the same view as John has just outlined in the sense that I don't uh, uh, put much weight on the tenor of his acceptance speech. I mean, the easiest speech any politician will tell you to make is the one after you're uh, elected to something. Uh, you know, the, the uh, hu humble demeanor in the office of uh, uh, Obama that doesn't greatly influence me either. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the feeling I have about it is that I think Trump is horrified 
I think the enormity of what has happened to him is just beginning to strike home. I haven't forgotten uh, an article in an American magazine that I I read seven or eight months ago that said uh, all of this was an accident, that it was a a self-promotional campaign to promote the Trump brand. Uh, He now no longer is really in real estate in the sense that he was. He's marketing the Trump brand and making a lot of money out of it. And this was marketing the Trump brand, uh, possibly coming up with a Trump TV network uh, or brand uh, and so on. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, events have taken over and he is in the White House and I, I think he, he's uh, just amazed at what has happened. I, 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 it brings to mind, I always go back to that uh, scene in Bridge Over the River Kwai, uh, Alec Guinness at the very end, realising, uh, oh my God, what have I done? He says he falls on the detonator and blows up the bridge. Yeah. Nora, I mean, one thing that strikes as well, and Pat made the point about the sentiment that's out there that's anti-politician. The one problem with that is, Issues in politics that are the staple of politics, like compromise, like having some regard for detail, like knowing about policy. If somebody comes in like Donald Trump, particularly 70 years of age, he spent a life as, 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 a, as a hustler in, in, in a business yeah. sense. It's going to be some transition to try and get his head around well, that. Well, it is. And I think the first thing we have to all recognise is that as long as we have democracies and we have elections... If the people vote a particular way, we might hate the hell out of it, but we have to accept that the vote is done. And unless you can call an election, when I lost my seat, I wished to God I could call an election the next day. I couldn't, and I had to accept the result. So we have to face the reality that almost 60 million people and the Electoral College elected Donald Trump, like him or loathe him. Now, I was struck by couple of, th- lots of things in the paper, but Fergal Keane uh, in The Independent, of, of whom I have great respect, he said but only in accepting the fact of his presidency can we start to make sense of where Trump can take us and how states and individuals might respond. So we nearly have to kind of get onto the platform that he's now elected and see how it goes. Now, I think some of the stuff he's rowing back on, I think the reality of what he said during the campaign hit him, as Pat said. He suddenly thought, oh, my God, now I've got to deliver. And I wrote down the word let down. I mean, if he starts to find that he can't deliver the wall, he can't deliver getting rid of Obamacare, he can't deliver some of the lowering of taxes when he finds out what bills have to be paid. Um, He runs the risk of losing that support and the letdown of the people who really put their faith in him. Now, let's not underestimate, Donald Trump didn't get elected just by what's referred to as the uneducated people who haven't got Mm -hmm. work. I was talking to somebody whose brother and sister-in-law live in a very upmarket area of Long Island and all the yards, as they call them, had Trump posters in. And these are well-paid, educated people who just got fed up of having to pay for everything when they watched other people getting it. So we have to be very aware. Now, in Matt Cooper's piece in the Sunday Business Post, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. He said, he quoted what Donald Trump once said. He said, I play to people's fantasies, an innocent form of exaggeration and a very effective form of promotion. That It was a game nearly to him. And Pat is right. When he went into to Obama, I suspect that Obama gave him some of the really difficult lines on both foreign policy and local policy that frightened him. I mean, I, I became a minister overnight when the Labour Fianna Fáil government collapsed. 
And it's a pretty scary thing to walk into a department the next morning and have secretaries general, secretary, assistant secretaries sit around and tell you what's going on because you don't really know mm. the full extent of it. So I would say, say there's a little bit of a shock there. I just hope that John's um, forecast that uh, he doesn't really take this rowing back. I think he'll find it's much harder to govern than he thought when he was making these appalling, awful, and he was appalling and awful during the campaign. And let's face it, he's rowing back on what he was going to do to Hillary. I think the whole Hillary thing, there's time to analyse all that as well, why she didn't do better and why she allowed Donald Trump, as it were, to run away with the election. Uh, John, just another thing strikes you in terms of the appeal of Donald Trump, Mary McKeown's piece in the Business Post, and she spent a year going around and I mean, in fairness, the media have been blamed for not getting out there. The likes of Mary McKeown was all over the States. And that's just one example of an Irish journalist. I'm sure a lot of American native journalists were as well. But Marion spoke about meeting this guy in Pennsylvania, Carpenter in Pennsylvania. And he basically put it to her like this. Voting for Donald Trump is like watching porn. A lot of guys are doing it, but they won't admit to it in public, com- in polite company. I mean, there's an element there of that Trump was voicing what a lot of people, well, a certain number of people feel but they were unwilling to... He was he, he was their vehicle for saying it. I, I happened to be in the States just the week after um, he announced his candidacy in, in 2015, and I, I was struck at the time at how it was beginning to unfold as a media spectacle. He wasn't being taken seriously mm. as a candidate. Um, his, out, his most outrageous comments were, were, were being dismissed as uh, sort of unimaginable. He couldn't possibly be saying these things, really. That was the, but, John, they were being the, covered. Of course, yeah. yeah. And that, the, the attitude, though, was that they, they, weren't being, they weren't being exactly taken seriously. I think only with a few exceptions, like, say, Marion McKeown and uh, David Farenthold in The Washington Post w- was, a, was a real example uh, for journalists all over the world in this campaign. Um, the, the media is not really equipped to handle this kind of a presidency. He, he doesn't adhere to any of the mm-hmm. norms um, that that politicians uh, but politicians are always um, castigated as as liars, but actually are, are are operating within the realm of truth all the mm-hmm. time. So there, you may be sort of shading, or you may be conditioning uh, what you're saying to appeal to an audience, but. Donald Trump doesn't really care. He, he, truth isn't his reference point at all. Um, it's a, it's about ego assertion. And just to get to your point about this sort of this sort of hidden or guilty p- pleasure that people have in in voting for him, I think Trump is really a representation of the American id. So uh, I, I'm I'm not so sure. Um, Explain the American id. Well, the, the the American id. I think we can't. I don't think we should we should um, sugarcoat where this really came from. The sort of ugliness that is behind. His support. So th- there's been a lot of talk about economic dislocation, the Americans that are left behind or can't see mm. a future in the American dream. Um, that that language is really coded to mean a certain kind of white person. Okay, the people who've really been left behind by the American dream are black people. Like, let's be honest about that, right? So white working class people in in say the Rust Belt. Um, I don't mean to minimize the economic difficulties of places like Toledo, Ohio, to take yeah. one particular example, or Detroit, Michigan, or whatever. But but those places also have very high minority populations. But it seems we're only concerned that uh, white working class men, especially, um, have been, say, left behind by what America is becoming. Let's put that to side for a second. I think there's a sort of uh, 
a racist and a xenophobic aspect to why people feel economically insecure. It's not about how much money is in their wallets. It's about how much money they think should be in their wallets and how much money is in other people's wallets that they think they should have themselves. And their status, if you go back 40 or 50 years when America was a very racially institutionalized country. Exactly. So if the ideal America that's presented to you in popular culture or in the history books even, uh, just, just about a decade ago, I think it was the broadcaster Tom Brokaw came out with a book called The Greatest Generation, which was all about lauding the achievements of the people who survived the Great Depression, won the Second World War, and and built the the glorious uh, world conquering America of the 1950s. Well, well, if that is presented to you as the ideal America, the the America of today doesn't look anything like that. It's mm-hmm. much browner for 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 a start. Um, it's a and glo- it has multi language. It's it's mm-hmm. multilingual. Exactly. Mm-hmm. My brother's married to a Spanish woman. They're raising their children bilingually. Um, she saw this before anyone else in my family saw it. She said, there's an ugliness in this country that the rest of you don't see. She said that to us and we dismissed it. Yeah, but having said that, Pat, it's not confined to America. And just to reference, which I thought was an interesting piece, Leo Varadkar's a piece in the Sunday Times. Now, unfortunately, anti-Mr. Varadkar does these days is interpreted as a, a reach for the leadership. But it is very interesting. Just to point out this Traditionally, politics divides left and right. This is still true, but less so than in the past. A new divide is emerging internationally between modern global liberalism on the one side and nostalgic, often populist nationalism on the other. And that, I think, feeds into what John is saying. But it's much wider than that. We're seeing that in Western Europe and even Eastern Europe as well. We are. uh, And uh, one of the worrying things is, will the Trump election give it a new impetus Uh, For example, it's going to be tested next year in France and in Germany. And uh, you might say now around this table that the notion of Le Pen being successful in France is a pipe dream. But that's what we would have said uh, six months ago about Trump. Six days ago. (laughs) Indeed. And she has committed uh, to withdrawing from the euro and she has committed to a referendum on membership of the European Union. Now, the European Union, of course, would not survive the departure of France. Uh, You have the development in uh, Holland, uh, where Wilders is uh, gaining uh, uh, traction all the time. Uh, Alternative for Germany. I mean, um, uh, that was a brilliant couple of paragraphs crafted by Merkel or for Merkel in her response, uh, you know, which was so markedly different to the response of Theresa May. Uh, Merkel said, yes, by all means, we salute your election uh, and would remind you that the common values that we share between our two countries... Are in the uh, Kenny's response, to be uh, fair. Uh, Merkel was the only one who, who made that point. She was the, she was the only... Well, she's the, she's the outstanding uh, politician of the... Mm. But, uh, as I learned in uh, Berlin um, uh, uh, some nine months ago, uh, the notion that her bring me your huddled masses and migrants come to uh, to Germany, uh, that simply is not popular in Germany. And uh, even though uh, the German economy needs migrant labor very badly, and even though 
you know, she has set out very rationally why she uh, did what she did. It is opposed within her own party. And alternative for Germany uh, is a kind of a Newt Gingrich. Uh, it's it's not a lumpen proletariat uh, right-wing response like the early 30s. Uh, there's an intellectual leadership in that uh, movement. So... Um, you know, it 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 is a time when conventional politics is being is threatened with being swept aside, uh, and uh, the social democratic uh, answer that was so powerful post-war in reconstructing Europe and rebuilding uh, social net uh, social uh, safety net and so on and so forth is at risk, uh, and uh, you know, for example, even in Germany. The longest established social democratic party in Europe uh, that that was so powerful um, is going to come out of this coalition greatly diminished. The Labour Party in Britain is in bits and is incapable of delivering a government uh, for that point of view. So, uh, you know, you you get the feeling that we are living through uh, an extraordinary transformative period in history that it's not always possible to see uh, when you are living through it. Nora, um, we've talked about Donald Trump and his, his impact in the world. What about his impact in this country? How do you see it? Uh, well, unfolding? just to, to finish a point Pat was making there, I mean, we've seen our, our own election here showing the kind of changes that have happened. You know, when I went into politics, two and a half parties, you know, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, Labour grew then. And now we have, I think, 10 groupings in, in, in you know, and so we've seen the fracturing of politics. And we have, the, but interestingly, the, the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael axis is still there to a large extent. It is, but, but it's not kind of working no. uh, very well. And the other thing is that the whole is- issue of social media and the way people get their information, most people under 40 probably don't buy a newspaper. They get their information in a different way than and I got it. And so that also has had a huge effect on this election as well. Um, Donald Trump, with regard to Ireland, I mean, Charlie Flanagan on the front page of the Sunday Independent is sort of speaking with the kind of diplomatic voice which he has to. He's the foreign minister. He says he's going to go and visit very quickly and he says we're going to try and build a good relationship. Remember, Donald Trump now has to find 4,000 people, is it John, that to fill to fill jobs. Yeah. So one hopes that some of the people he will put around him will be serious politicians and people who understand the making of decisions. Um, I I think when he goes to do the things like building the wall, there's a cartoon in the back of the Sunday Business Post where he says with a loudspeaker, get out, get out. And then the last one is, oh, sorry, we have a wall to build. Stay with us. If he tries to remove the 11 million or 12 million who are undocumented people in America and give those jobs to the people that voted for him. Let's see if those people will stand up and take those jobs. That's the next step. Will they take the jobs that a lot of the uh, undocumented well, take? There's, there's so less the than same 5% here, unemployment there at the moment. Yes, so, you know, so, so, so it's, it's, it, there's a capacity there you know, for, for, for people to be got rid of and yeah. other people to take the job. Here in Ireland... Um, I remember 1984 when Ronald Reagan came and there were protests about Ronald Reagan. When Ronald Reagan became president, there was a lot of very nasty stuff written about him. It turned out not to be too bad. I mean, he had the whole South America and, and, and Middle America against him for what he was doing down in El Salvador and places. But here in Ireland, there'll be a welcome for him down in Clare, that's for sure. Anybody who, who knows about his golf course will welcome him there. 
I, I just get a feeling that we have to be careful about how we look at democracy and how we accept. We were appalled when Donald Trump announced, I won't accept the result, whatever happens, mm. you know, if I don't win. We are all now saying, you know, the general consensus is we don't want to accept the result because he won. We can't have it both no, ways. I agree, with, I agree with that, Una, yeah. or uh, Nora. I agree with that. But... I, I I do think that temperament and personality matters. And what would worry me is that you made the remark earlier, uh, you said that he's going to find it, uh, that it's harder to govern. Mm. He is. And when he's frustrated and when it is explained to him that he can't do this, that and the other that he has promised... <laughs> And, you know, when you become bogged down and different nuances in Congress and all the rest, uh, one worries about the temperament to, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, we are already seeing the conditioning starting that says, well, wasn't he very gracious in his acceptance speech? And and that was a really polite engagement with Obama. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, he's a different. I tend to think. That the insight, <laughs> the insight that we got in the last 15 months into Donald Trump is the Donald Trump that is there. And therefore, I think it's very unpredictable that when in the normal process of governance that he becomes bogged down uh, wh- on what big issues might he react because he's he's temperamentally. I mean, you can't be in politics and be so thin skinned. I mean, because the stuff that you guys dish out at us <laughs> politicians yes, yes, yes. Sure, yeah. are, are yeah. such that... And, as soon Pat and, is and we never respond, Michael. You know, yeah. you know I that. do, Pat. Come on, come on, come and on. And as soon for as God's you go to make okay. a decision as a minister, there's somebody there at your elbow saying, yes, minister, that sounds like a very good idea, but you do realise 50,000 people will be disenfranchised or 10,000 people or even 2,000 very seriously yeah. damaged people will be hurt by it. And suddenly you have to go back to the drawing board again. He'll find that. And even with the Senate and the Congress on his side, he still has to get stuff through there. You know, he can't do executive orders for everything. Look yeah. at Obama. I want to shut down Guantanamo Bay. It's still open, you know. John, just taking it back here for a while, a lot of people are going on about the corporate tax rate. Mm. Now, that's something any new Republican, even president, could change. But the protectionist element to his, well, what we perceive as <laughs> so called agenda, would that be even more um, difficult for us here? I think both are dangerous. There are two appropriately pessimistic pieces in the papers today that I think are worth looking at. One is Conor Brady in the Sunday Times and the other is Colin McCarthy in the Sunday Independent, who's, who's I think, appropriately pessimistic every week. Um, <laughs> but both are looking at these issues and uh, I think they're capturing something about the shift. It's it's global, but now really um, captured in, in the U.S. away from open globalized trade to, towards protectionism. That's the That's the trend, whatever Donald Trump, I think, is able to achieve. And we've seen the problems here in Europe, um, the tension between uh, what we have to survive in order to keep the euro intact and and what people Mm -hmm. thought their futures uh, might have been. And in the States, they're looking around and they're saying, well, you know, the Chinese are manufacturing all these things that we used to make here. Um, Our lives don't seem as good as they should. We've, we've, you know, we've exported, uh, we've exported a lot of labor overseas to cheaper markets or in order to keep inflation down, for instance. And that's a hard thing to explain to people like your wages are stagnant. But hey, there's no inflation. Congratulations. No, nobody likes to hear that. They, they want pay rises. Um, specifically here in Ireland, I think the, the corporate tax is certainly 
a threat, not necessarily to investment that's here already, um, but the next incremental investment. Um, our chief economist and good body, Dermot O'Leary, was, was writing about this on, on Thursday. Uh, he's, he's normally quite bullish on the Irish economy, but I, I think he's a little bit rattled by the, the implications uh, that could be coming down the tracks uh, for Ireland, Conor Brady says um, we'll need astute and principled footwork in order to navigate our way through this. Colin McCarthy makes a much more um, fundamental point, which is that uh, Irish budget management this year left a lot to be desired and that our economic recovery is greatly dependent on three things that are beyond our control, energy prices, low interest rates, and uh, the third one is uh, cheap a cheap euro, yeah, mm-hmm. an inexpensive euro. Well, okay, John, but one thing that is within <clears throat> our national control and comes from, there's a piece in the Business Post, which I think it might also be described as appropriately pessimistic, and that's John Moore, the former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, who suggested pay restoration, which is the topic du jour in domestic politics, is an unfair demand, and he's suggesting that it could quite wreck the economy. I, th- I think it's certainly uh, a challenge that the current government is dealing with, and there's there's blood in the water here, right? So you have a an already government that um, is beholden in some way to the sort of shadow government in Fianna Fáil, which is the more populist of the two major parties here. Um, there was the concession made to the guards and now everybody's in for a free-for-all. I think uh, John Moran is maybe being slightly sensationalistic about wrecking the economy, but uh, but it's clearly a real danger. Um, people forget that in addition to the cost of the bank bailout, uh, which we all had to bear, what was really uh, the, the long-term problem for Irish budgets was the cost of the public sector. Some of that obviously is services, but a lot of it is pay and pensions. Um, And it's something I think that we haven't completely got control over. And it's something also that the private sector has had to deal with. You see many major corporations now can't stand over the promises they made for defined benefit pensions either. It's a problem throughout the economy. Pat, I mean, he makes a point here, and probably this probably harks back to the, the, the political temperature. An RT survey found that 50% of the Irish people who want pay restoration claims to be accepted now that the Gardaí are getting their award. It was lazy not to ask the real question, would you like to grant pay restoration and be willing to pay for it with a trebling of your rate of the local property tax or deferring the building of schools, National Children's Hospital? What about paying for pay restoration by not hiring more nurses or teachers? That's the, that, that is the type of um, line that is coming out to a certain extent from the government at the moment. Yeah, I mean, inaccuracy, uh, the trade unions have been very responsible since the crash. Uh, and the flurry of statements uh, and rhetoric that you see at the moment has been prompted by the cave-in to the Gordi. Uh, there's no point. Is that a in, mistake? There's no point. To, yes, it's a mis- it was it was a mistake in in, in my opinion. Uh, but the government, uh, as Nora Owen will know better than me, I mean, confronted with the situation at the twelfth hour, yeah. and given that the Gordi in this country are responsible for security as well as protection of the citizen. Uh, If there was a whole-scale withdrawal of labour the following day, and if there was some tragic uh, development or accident, you can imagine the difficulty the government would have found itself in. But, um, you know, the Gordi had a real issue about the new recruits, Mm. about junior Gordi, just like uh, elsewhere in the public service. That's a real issue. And in fairness to the Lansdowne Road Agreement, it is an issue that has been acknowledged and was being addressed with two big steps towards equality next January and the following January. Uh, But the actions of the Gordi 
uh, has, uh, you know, in the conviction of other unions, uh, driven a coach and four uh, through the uh, agreement, even though they were outside Lansdowne. You know, that's a technicality that's not really Mm. material here. So, you know, they have been very responsible. And it it is a big challenge now to the government. And the, the normal populist instinct of Fianna Fáil is going to be tested here because the government can only uh, bring order to the present situation uh, with the support of Fianna Fáil. And when you look at something like water and the outrageous uh, gyrations of Fianna Fáil on water, uh, you you can't be confident. The obvious thing is, uh, you know, the budget is there for 2017. Uh, Nobody thinks now that the uh, Lansdowne Road Agreement will survive until September 2018. But it's still possible to uh, negotiate a a new collective agreement that doesn't impact on the 2017 budget, but is going to impact earlier in 2018. You'd want to negotiate it fast. Nurses are balloting this week. Mm. SIPTU are balloting their workers. I mean, it's something that the pressure has been ramped up really but, but Mick, doesn't doesn't the pressure come on too? In today's paper, it's clarified again that the government still hasn't identified where they're going to get the forty million. They need to decide where that forty million is no, coming from. You have from. to ask in the last uh, budget. What, what, yeah, in the last budget, to give over three hundred million in tax cuts. Was, yes, was that the appropriate thing to do at a time like this? They did, but again, it shows the complexity of trying to do a budget across all the sectors of society. And of course, governments uh, get elected by saying we will look at tax rates, we will try to bring them down. And once we began to move out of the recession, a sort of expectation grew that once we were moving out of the recession, we could have everything back that we had. And the truth of it is we can't and couldn't at any stage have expected the whole lot. The FEMPI legislation, which is this magical thing where where it came in, where they removed people's uh, rises and all that, it's become a kind of a badge now and they all want FEMPI to be withdrawn. Look, I think the Labour Court had no choice but to do what they did to stop the fact that the guards were going to be all gone and gone off the streets. But it has given the, they're on the horns of a dilemma because it's hard to see how the Lansdowne Road Agreement can be quite as solid as the government are saying it is when that's there. So tell us where the 40 million, if it's the Department of Justice, tell us what cuts, other cuts are going to have to be done because that's the reality. There's a choice. You can't find 40 million. I remember being at something that Parik Flynn was at one time and he was doing this kind of folksy stuff, you know. I had a big bucket of money at the door of my department and I put my hand into it and I brought you a big bucket of money today like as if somehow there was a slush fund somewhere in the department. There isn't slush funds anywhere. The 40 million has to be found, has to be announced where it's coming from. The guards have still to vote on it. We don't know whether that vote will be carried. So I'm just saying that the, the, the kind of decisions that the government make now are the kind of ones that, you know, Trump is going to find himself having to make in his own new uh, manif- manifesto when he goes in. And it isn't it isn't an easy time, and the government needs to start the negotiation for the new Lansdowne to prevent the the rest of the teachers, the nurses, the the you know any other sector of the public sector going out on strike. And John, there there is another issue though, and that is that there is an, a recovery has been going on. Yes, there is a feeling abroad, most definitely, that that has been completely skewed in favour of the better off, and that those 
public servants, mid, lower middle income earners are not feeling it. You're looking at a time of increased rents. There's a crisis in the housing system. It would seem that there's a fracture there in society and this is just a manifestation of it. I, I think it's fair to look at it that way. And again, economics is often about trade-offs. So the explicit policy of the European Central Bank to have low rates and to buy up uh, government bonds left, right and centre has certainly enriched anybody who is a holder of real estate assets, uh, enriches anybody who is uh, a holder of bonds b- before that happens because what, hap- what happens is they create demand or there's cheap money flooding somewhere and then it goes into into real assets. So in- unless you're in a position to benefit from that, you're, you're not going to feel the economic recovery in the same way until wages start to recover. Um, but but the flip side of that, and this is where I think the the government uh, has to take some responsibility, um, is is that we've had policy choices going back uh, to to at least um, when the troika left about how we conduct our own national business, and we have chosen, for instance, uh, to allow property prices to inflate, to create or permit the conditions whereby supply would be constrained. Um, that's nice if you're a property holder, um, but it's not if you're currently renting and trying to buy property or if you're a new business trying to get was a, that a, choice, a lease John, on a or Oh, I think absolutely it's it's a choice. So d- don't forget who owns NAMA, right? So um, NAMA holds all of this, uh, all of this commercial uh, property and development loans, um, and they can't turn a profit on that unless prices come up off the floor they were at but before. But do you give no credence, John, to the uh, proposition that at a stage when they were on the floor that in order to get uh, some kind of market going again, that it was necessary to do some... Oh, oh, absolutely. I completely Mm. agree that it was necessary to do something. I'm just pointing out that there are certain consequences to that. And one of the consequences is that people are going to feel that the price of assets is, one, running away from them if they're seeking to to buy property, but two, that the people who already owned assets... um, are going to mm. are going to benefit from this, mm. right? So you've seen stock markets have performed very well since um, since two thousand and nine. Um, that that's not a bad thing. I work for a stockbroker. I think it's terrific. Um, we we just have to remember that not everybody is in a okay. position to benefit from that. More from our panel in just a moment. But we're joined now by Richie McCormick from Off the Ball to hear what's in the sports pages and what's coming up in the show later. Richie, uh, would it be fair to say a great day rather than a good day yesterday? It was a very, very, very good day from an Irish <laughs> perspective yesterday. It has to be said. I mean, we must start off with that game in Vienna, a place where we'd never won yeah. as an international side up until last night. Went there. Uh, didn't put in the greatest of performances ourselves but did enough to get the victory against not in the first half not in the first half but in the second half really exerted the pressure on Austria and got the result I think we deserved Austria it must be put into perspective looked a very very poor side Um, they were there for the taking but thankfully this time around I suppose unlike the Serbia game which we started off our campaign with we actually managed to take all three points from this one when they were available Okay, so plenty of coverage of that in the papers. What else is in the papers and what's coming up in the show? Yeah, there's plenty obviously on Ireland's victory over Canada as well. There's a few people who put their hand up for that second test against the All Blacks next week. We're looking at, I suppose, ultimately Ulton Delan and perhaps even Tiernan O'Halloran, possibly only as a backup though for the uh, for the Connacht full back. But also the old hands like Keane Healy and Peter O'Mahony have put their hands up with decent performances. Ran in eight tries yesterday, did Ireland against Canada. There's also a reaction coming up on the show too to Conor McGregor's win. He's added the lightweight belt to his featherweight title, set all kinds of new records in the UFC they took in a gate of 17.7 million dollars in Madison Square Garden last night which beat the previous best of uh, Holyfield Lewis in 1999 so whatever your thoughts on this 
uh, profession, this sport, it's not going away in a hurry. It's making people a lot of money. Well, President-elect okay. Trump uh, is likely to give it a new boost. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. See Connor in the White House. There'll be a lot of people who probably crave seeing him, him inside the well, Octagon. What have we got on the show, Richie? Uh, we'll be looking back on that fight. Chris Fields is going to be coming to the studio. We'll also have the uh, the paper review. Uh, Paul Cambridge today writing about the differences between the treatment of, say, Paul McGrath and Colin McCarran and how they've been looked at recently in the press. Uh, so Clean Foley and Vincent Hogan are going to be in on papers for that one. We'll also be speaking to Stephen Kenny will be getting full reaction as well to Ireland Austria and a special chat that Joe had with the former England head coach in rugby Clive Woodward very good Richie thanks for that and we'll talk to you we'll see you then on Off the Ball that starts at 12 o'clock still with us is Nora Owen Pat Rabbit and John Isle Pat um, there's been coverage today in the paper from the Court of Criminal or the, excuse me the Court of Appeal decision to uphold Alan Shatter's uh, objection to criticism of him in the Gearn report which listeners may remember was a report that was done into allegations of Garda malpractice which criticised Mr Shatter for his for things he did when he was Minister of Justice. The court has now deemed that that criticism was unfair and that his, his constitutional rights are in jeopardy. Uh, just pieces in the paper today suggesting Sarah Carey in particular on Sunday Independent that he was done a grievous wrong. You were in the cabinet with him at that time. Do you think he was done a grievous wrong by what unfolded? Uh, I do, yeah. I do. Um I think uh, he was a very conscientious uh, reforming minister and I think it was an extraordinary uh, cumulative set of events. Uh, Do you think his handling of that Garda whistleblower thing was... uh, No one's questioning his integrity. Was it politically inept? Uh, It was to some degree because I don't think, uh, unlike most members of Dáil Éireann, I don't think Alan Shatter... Uh, you know, uh, was a great man for going into the local pub and finding out what people were saying uh, about the uh, the the Gordi. I mean, for example, I think the other 157 members of the Dáil would know that penalty points uh, were were being uh, forgotten and uh, lost in in some cases. Uh, that seemed to come as a something of a surprise to uh, to Alan Shatter. Uh, but having said that, um, uh, you know, and, and we all have, have deficiencies and defects and made mistakes and all the rest. The fact of the matter is uh, he was a he was a good minister. And this uh, this um, coming together of extraordinary events uh, led to I'm not surprised that uh, in a matter uh, where. Uh, reputation was likely to be adversely impacted on even by a preliminary report that the court should find that in natural justice uh, you have to hear the other side and there was extraordinarily no attempt made. Absolutely, but was it not also open to Enda Kenny when that report was published to come out and say exactly that and to consult Alan Shatter and say, well, Alan, how's this? And Mr. Shatter, as he explained in his resignation letter, could have made that point and it was perfectly open to Enda Kenny to say, well, let's see what the full inquiry says because it did vindicate him effectively. So is, is it not down to Enda Kenny's political decision rather than events that swirled around at the time? Well, I think this is where politics is different. Uh, you know, sometimes a head of steam, uh, you know, is created in politics and it has to be released. Uh, I don't want to talk for Enda Kenny. I don't exactly know what transpired uh, between the two men or what exactly was in his mind. But sometimes, I mean, these were extraordinary events. I mean, you say I was in the cabinet. Uh, I was. 
But if you were to ask me what all that G-Sock row was about, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I mean, what was all that about uh, that triggered a great deal of this? You know, mystery yeah. men walking down... Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it could tell you what it was about. Nick a suspicion, a suspicion yeah. that elements in the Garda Shikana were in one form or another um, putting under surveillance or interfering with the work of GSOC. That's what it was about. Horrific, ser- horrifically serious allegation. But I don't recall anything that transpired that brought home to me that in fact that was established. No, but the handling of it by Mr Shatter focused on the fact that he had not been informed of GSOC about this rather than whether or not there was an issue there. And I think that added to the, 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 the political, some would say, mishandling of the whole event by him, which fed into ultimately Andy Kenny's decision that this, mm. you know, possibly one-sided report that it was an excuse to get rid of him. Well, uh, you know, as I say, sometimes, uh, you know, the pressure comes on politically uh, that, you know, something is no longer sustainable and it's established uh, years later uh, that it was a bottle of smoke. Uh, The fact of the matter is Shatter was a reforming minister. Mm. He had a huge appetite for work, uh, was engaged on a a huge number of fronts. In fact, if the old arrangement of the previous cabinet that Nora Owen and I were in... uh, had obtained where there was a separate minister for equality and law reform and a minister for policing and justice. You know, uh, Shatter would have been an outstanding minister for law reform, but maybe his his lack of common touch in terms of dealing with the Garda Shikana uh, was ultimately uh, what led to this extraordinary series of events. I, I think he's had a good win and I think it's a fair win that he's had. I mean, it, it always struck me as strange that Garen didn't, at the very least, call him in. Even for five minutes, he, he interviewed Morris McCabe for hours and hours and hours and hours and didn't call in Shatter. And as soon as it was clear Shatter hadn't been called in, in a way, that was a, a sign for Enda Kenny to say, look, he did say it, this is an interim report. But the O'Higgins, Kevin O'Higgins report subsequently also uh, seemed to clear shatter of any wrongdoing. But Pat is right. The, the pressure that was building up around Alan Shatter by maybe Alan's own personality and the well, way that, he handled it. But that's the issue. It. What, was it his own fault? Well, there was certainly an element of that because people in the doll certainly from the opposition were really, they didn't like him. And they, the way they, he they, handled things. In uh, fairness yeah, to and, the way And he, they were he, paying him back for probably years of the kind of heckling that he did himself. But, but in this instance... It was clear he should have been interviewed by Garen, and Garen himself says, I wasn't able to get papers, I wasn't able to get information. Sarah Carey has a very graphic article in the Sunday Indo about it, and she clarifies from the report what Garen said. And it kind of led you to think, well, why the hell didn't you go to the minister and say, what exactly did you do? Um, it's a difficult one for Enda Kenny to cope with now, because I remember at the time, it was around, there was a local election on, Pat will remember that, and every night people were coming back from the doors and saying they're all giving out about Alan Chatter. So a pressure built up and it's like releasing or lancing the old cliche, lancing a boil. It was like as if Alan himself realised. I mean, he, he read three chapters of the report and then he... He was he, only he, given time to read yes, it by Ender and, and then he, he said to Ender he would go. Maybe he should have had the courage to stay on and fight that corner. Well, Enda, Enda, Enda told him, Mr. Kenny told him that he, he, would, he yes. wouldn't be in a position to and have Alan confidence. And Alan said he didn't want to bring the government down on this issue and that. 
but it's, it was a very severe punishment he got. I mean, he lost his he lost his ministry first, which he absolutely, as he said himself, loved and adored, and he lost his seat. And subsequently, should, should Kenny do anything now, or is it possible to do anything now to atone for that? Well, I mean, he can't give him back his seat no. without calling an election, <laughs> and he can't give him back a ministry. Can he apologise to him? Uh, he he can certainly probably uh, try to mend the the fences there. I don't know whether they've had a meeting. I don't think they have had a meeting, and the Trump thing intervened in the middle of all this. I think there's some fences there that Ender will have to mend. Okay, John, um, I know this isn't your ballywick, but just on a different matter that's also in the papers, were you a Leonard Cohen fan? I was a sort of peripheral Leonard Cohen fan. So I've actually been listening to his um, to his new album because there was a sense of, I don't know, foreboding in it. Um, Similar to David Bowie's, I think, earlier. Exactly, yeah, that uh, he, he suspected what was coming, knew what was coming. He was 82, 83 years old, so I, I don't think it came as a surprise to him any more than it came as a surprise um, to, to any of us. Um, and it's uh, I've been listening to it in headphones rather than uh, sort of through the air, and it's it's really affecting to have his voice kind of rattling around in, inside inside your head, like the intimacy of it. I think it was Nadine O'Regan in um, the Sunday Business Post was uh, was talking about the intimacy of the of Leonard Cohen's voice. I think it's interesting, also, uh, you know, just a month after Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for, for literature. The first thought I had uh, when I heard that was, why not Leonard Cohen? Yeah. Mm. Uh, who I think of course, Leonard Cohen apparently said uh, in response to that, it was uh, Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize was like pinning a medal on Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Uh, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Nora Owen, former Justice Minister and Fine Gael TD, Pat Rabbit, former leader of the Labour Party and John Isle, Head of Communications at Good Body.